This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 243. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Mr. Jacob Paulson. Hello, Jacob. Howdy. Thanks for having me. And Jacob is, <laughs> this has been a while, Jacob is the guy who just went to Disneyland for like the, what, 10th year in a row or something. We don't go every year. <laughs> we go every other year. Get it right. <laughs> it seems like you go all the time, man. <laughs> every other year. And Riley is the guy who has more hats than he has all other articles of clothing combined. Probably true. Had to think about it. <laughs> Just sitting here on my desk, though, are the, are the ones for the latest uh, collection that I have received in the last month. I've got a couple of Vortex hats, Burris hat, and a Bergara hat. That's kind of cool. I like the kind of skull mountain, uh, or not, yeah, mountain sheep. It's a lot of hats, man. Bighorn sheep. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, man. It's cool. I love hats. You know, when you have a naked noggin like I've got, you got to protect it. <laughs> sure. All right, so folks, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we have a lot of great stories to cover. Um, today's title of the episode has to deal with how a homeowner mistakenly got shot by police after he shot an intruder. This is something that, that does not happen like hardly ever. No, we have plenty of paranoia about it in the industry, right? Like we talk all the time about all the things that are so important to do so that it doesn't happen to you. Yep. But it, it basically almost never happens to anybody anyway. Yep. This time it happened. Yeah, it did. I was shocked when I saw the story. We have another story where a husband accidentally shot his wife, thinking she was an intruder. Both of these stories happened in Colorado. What is up with that, man? Like, things are just going to the pits here. Not cool. <laughs> and we've got a bunch of other legis legislative updates and a whole bunch of great justified safe stories, ones where people actually do what they're supposed to, you know, do what they got to do and nobody gets hurt that shouldn't get hurt. <laughs> so anyway, we're looking forward to getting into it with you all today. Uh, thanks to all of you viewing on Facebook. It's awesome to see you. Feel free to drop in your comments, questions, etc. We'll get to those if we can. Today's episode is brought to you by a very special big time announcement. And I'm going to turn it over to Jacob to give us the rundown. We've been teasing this for a couple episodes. I am super, super, super stoked. So what is the big announcement? It deals with concealedcarry.com and our Guardian Nation members and the USCCA. It's true. Here's the short and skinny dealio of the deal. If you are a member, an active member of Guardian Nation, starting effective now, immediately today, you can receive a 15% discount off of your USCCA membership. Now, this is important because it applies to all levels of USCCA membership. doesn't matter if you're platinum level, elite level member, silver, gold, whatever. Uh, you can get 15% off. And it's a recurring uh, discount. So maybe you just renewed your USCCA membership you know, two months ago. Great. You know, get set up right now. And the next time you renew, you'll get 15% off. And as long as you remain an active member of Guardian Nation, you always have a right to 15% off your USCCA membership. And it's a big deal because... USCCA doesn't do discounts like ever. <laughs> like you can't get a discount. <laughs> there are no coupon codes. There are no ways to get 
As far as I'm aware, this is the first time the USCCA has ever allowed in any form or method for anyone to get any discount on any membership with the USCCA. So we're pretty proud and excited about that. And for those of you who are listening to this who are already members of Guardian Nation and already members of the USCCA, I would encourage you to go log into the members area under the uh, page, the member page that says uh, member discounts. You'll see the option there to claim your 15% off. For those of you who are members of Guardian Nation who are not yet members of the USCCA but have been on the fence, 15% off sounds like a pretty good reason to reconsider that. And for those of you who are members of the USCCA but are not yet members of Guardian Nation and have been on the fence there, it's, it's like getting two months of Guardian Nation for free, essentially, because of, the, of what you're going to save on your USCCA membership. So all the more reasons to get going. Yeah. Jacob, you need to sound way more excited and animated when you're telling this us this crazy big news, man. It's a big deal. Like, I'm sorry if I just don't have the energy that Riley Bowman has. I'm a pretty, like, mellow dude. But I, I first off, we're talking about one of the biggest providers in the country, right? There are over 200,000 members of the United States Consult Care Association. So it applies to a ton of people. We recently did a survey, and we asked uh, you know, people who responded to the survey if they have self-defense insurance. And 60% of our survey respondents said they do. A large percentage of them have USCCA uh, membership. So... That's already like a massive opportunity. Any sort of discount would be great, but we're talking about a product that previously there was no conceivable way for you to save money on. Now, the elite membership with USCCA Rally is what, $500 a year, I think? Correct. So 15% off $500 is, I'm not a genius, but I'm pretty sure that's 15 times five. That's like 75 bucks, I think. 75 bucks. So $75 a year that you save on your USCCA membership by being an active member of Guardian Nation. Guardian Nation only costs $38.45 a month. So as I said, it's it's effectively like two months free. Two months free of your Guardian Nation yep. membership, if you want to think of it that way. Never mind the fact that you already get all basically your your entire membership dues in Guardian Nation back in product. And then you get access to our members only area on the website training videos, special events like tonight's Guardian Nation live event, which is another awesome benefit. In fact, one of our members' favorite benefits of being a member is participating in these monthly uh, live broadcasts and Q&A sessions with industry professionals. You get all of that, and it's already an awesome value, and then you throw into this the only place to get a, a membership discount with the USCCA. Off of already great pro- – I mean, like you have two – Awesome, great products coming together, saving you money all the way around. Boom. Good deal. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I'm just, we've been, I've been like chomping at the bit for a long time. I think I've even dropped a hint like several weeks ago on the podcast and just said, like, hey, we got, we got cool things coming, guys. Got cool things coming. You probably like think you hear that all the time. Which, well, we'd like to think we have cool things coming all the time. <laughs> but, but I was literally thinking of this and, and thinking, man, I wish I could tell you all what the big news is. And it is now official and it is awesome. So check it out. Go to guardianation.com to get signed up today. If, you don't, if you're not already a member, go to the members only area. Get, you know, log into your dashboard on the website if you are already a member and go to the, what was it, the button, button again? Membership? I think it says uh, member discounts. Discounts. Go to the member discounts button and you'll find instructions there for how to claim your 15% discount with the USCCA, right? If you're not a USCCA member and you've been thinking about getting some sort of self-defense insurance type coverage, go on over to USCCA. In fact, we have a link 
somewhere, don't we? Right? It's in the same place. Go to that same member discount button and click on that that link that's there, and it'll automatically apply the 15% discount when you sign up. Boom. There you go. I mean, how easy is that? So make sure you're a member of Guardian Nation today. Go to the member, member, member discounts page in your members area and get signed up today. That's awesome. Uh, tonight, we have a Guardian Nation live broadcast and Q&A session together with Clint Macro of the Trigger Pressers Union. And also, it was one of the guys behind the National Train a Teacher Day organization, which I think is awesome and worthwhile. Clint's been a, a, a trainer for a number of years now. He's well-respected. He hosts classes with a bunch of you know top people in the industry. He teaches a lot of great classes. He's constantly busy with it. I uh, appreciate all the work that Clint does as an instructor. And we had him on our Concealed Carry Expo um, live broadcast. We interviewed him at the Concealed Carry Expo show just a couple of months ago, and we told him, "Hey, dude, we got to we got to get you on and have you on have you on the Guardian Nation broadcast." So a benefit open to Guardian Nation members. Once a month, we do these broadcasts, and you can see and interact with us live. Uh, you can ask questions, get answers, and hear directly from these world-class trainers and other industry professionals. So tonight, Clint Macro, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. If you're a Guardian Nation member, log into your dashboard. Go to GN Live or Guardian Live. I don't remember the exact name of the button. And there is a link there where you can join tonight's broadcast, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Must be present uh, to there's a chance to win a bunch of prizes that are going to be given away. That's right. That's the other big thing. We are giving away a bunch of great prizes. So check on in and just we'll be randomly selecting from those that are at the, at the time that we select those winners. If you're there, we will pick a winner and you're going to get a great prize just for being there tonight. So I'm super excited for that as well. So with that, I think we should, uh, get now into the actual content of today's episode. A lot of exciting stuff, though, we had to cover before this point, didn't we? Indeed. Yeah. All right. So first up, we've got a legislative update. In our legislative updates segment of the show, Judge Block's gun control group's lawsuit to stop downloadable 3D printed guns. Actually, put the brakes on. We're forgetting something, bro. Oh, case of the week. Case of the week. <laughs> How did we miss that? I just got so excited and animated about the uh, USCCA discount. Well, before we get to that Back up the great truck. story about how the judge blocked gun control group's lawsuit, <laughs> let's get to this week's Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week from attorney Andrew Branca. And I know this is a good one. It's been on a lot of people's minds. So... Here we go. Let's cue this one up. In three, two, one. There we go. Oh, it's not playing. Hang on. There we go. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This case of the week is provided for educational purposes only. This case of the week is the handicapped parking spot shooting that occurred in Florida last week and which was caught on surveillance video. You can watch that video by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash parking. On Friday, July 20th, headlines were made when the local sheriff announced he would not be arresting the shooter. 
As the basis for his decision, he cited Florida's Self-Defense Immunity Law, 776032, which you can read at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash 776032. That statute, relentlessly and incorrectly referred to as Florida's Stand Your Ground Law, Stand Your Ground is actually an entirely distinct legal doctrine and even a different statute, has several relevant provisions. In addition to providing for criminal and civil immunity for acts of self-defense, it also provides that while law enforcement can use normal procedures to investigate a use-of-force event, they are not permitted to arrest the user of force unless they have probable cause to believe that the use of force was unlawful. In addition, the user of force can sue civilly to recover legal expenses and other costs if self-defense immunity is ultimately granted. What the sheriff had to evaluate then was whether the available evidence was likely to support a finding of self-defense, in which case the use of force was likely lawful and an arrest impermissible, or whether the available evidence was likely to fail to support a finding of self-defense, in which case the use of force was unlawful and an arrest was appropriate. As I hope everyone knows by now, a self-defense claim consists of up to five elements, and all of the required elements must be present in order for the claim of self-defense to be valid. Those elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. That's it, folks, just those five, and sometimes not even all of those, if one or more of the elements has been legally waived. In addition, the burden is on the prosecution to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, except in Ohio, meaning disproving any one of the required elements beyond a reasonable doubt. In order to understand, then, whether the shooting would be likely to be found to be lawful, we need to evaluate it on those five elements and determine whether any required element appears vulnerable to disproof beyond a reasonable doubt. The basic facts of this event are that the victim and his girlfriend drove to a convenience store, the girlfriend driving. She parked in a handicapped parking spot without license to do so and stayed in the car while the victim entered the store. The shooter observed that she was in a handicapped spot without the proper placard and started loudly and profanely telling her to move her car out of that parking spot. The victim became aware of this disturbance and exited the store. He immediately closed on the shooter and viciously shoved him to the ground, then hovered over him menacingly. It's worth noting that the shover here was 28 years old and the victim was 47. The shooter drew his handgun for which he had a concealed carry license and the victim shuffled a step or two back. About one and a half seconds after aligning the muzzle on the victim, the shooter fired a single round into the victim's chest. The victim clutched his chest, turned, and jogged back into the convenience store where he would die. After about 30 seconds, the shooter struggled to his feet, put his gun in his vehicle, and waited for police. So, let's evaluate the five elements of a self-defense claim. In terms of the element of innocence, what's relevant is who was the initial aggressor, that is, the first person to threaten or use force against another. In this case, the initial aggressor is the victim when he violently shoved the shooter to the ground. Although the shooter may have been acting imprudently and obnoxiously in scolding the girlfriend, mere non-threatening words do not constitute an act of physical aggression. So innocence is arguably in favor of a claim of self-defense here. In terms of the element of imminence, what's relevant is whether the victim had the ability to cause harm, the opportunity to do so, and whether he conducted himself in a manner from which a reasonable person would infer that he intended to bring that ability and opportunity to cause harm to bear. Here, the boyfriend, standing looming over the shooter before the gun was presented, clearly had the ability and opportunity to cause harm, and his conduct in violently throwing the shooter to the ground 
constituted jeopardy. Even after seeing the gun, although the victim shuffled back a step or two, he did not make a clear effort to retreat from the conflict, but remained squarely facing the shooter just a few feet away. So, eminence is arguably in favor of the claim of self-defense. In terms of the element of proportionality, what's relevant is whether the shooter reasonably believed he was facing a deadly force threat when he first presented and second fired his gun, because that's what would be required to justify the shooter's use of deadly defensive force. It's important to keep in mind, however, that a deadly force threat includes not merely force capable of causing death, but also force capable of causing serious bodily injury less than death. Also, what's relevant here is not really the violent throw to the ground. By the time the shooter has his gun out, that throw to the ground is in the past, and he can't justify the use of deadly defensive force because of some past use of force against him. A pretty good indication that you're about to have force inflicted upon you, however, is that someone just did so a moment ago and is hovering threateningly with the capability to inflict even more force. It's that additional aggressive force that's imminent against which the shooter would be justified in defending himself. Now, on these facts, was it reasonable for the defendant to infer from the immediately preceding attack that he was still in imminent danger of being kicked or stomped while on the ground, acts that can clearly, readily cause serious bodily injury? I suppose reasonable people can disagree, but keep in mind that the legal standard will be that the prosecution must disprove the shooter's reasonable fear beyond a reasonable doubt. On that basis, and given the victim's vicious initial attack, I expect it would not be hard for a jury to conclude that in the one and a half seconds or so in which the shooter had to make his decision, and after the 47-year-old shooter had been violently thrown to the ground, possibly stunned from the attack, with his attacker hovering menacingly over him, that it was not unreasonable for him to conclude he was still in imminent danger of serious bodily harm. Keep in mind, folks, we're not required to make perfect decisions in self-defense, were required to make reasonable decisions in self-defense given the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Given all that, arguably, proportionality is in favor of the claim of self-defense. In terms of the element of avoidance, Florida is a stand-your-ground state, so the shooter had no legal duty to retreat, but that's irrelevant because a duty to retreat only ever exists when it's possible to retreat with complete safety. One is not required to increase their jeopardy in order to attempt to retreat. Having been thrown violently to the ground with his attacker hovering first menacingly over him and then just a step or two away, there was no reasonable means of safe retreat for the shooter. And if there were no means of safe retreat, there is no duty to retreat, and stand your ground can play no role in relieving a duty that does not exist. So, avoidance is arguably also in favor of the claim of self-defense. In terms of reasonableness, this can be thought of as an umbrella element that hovers over the prior four elements. In this case, there's no dispute who was the initial aggressor, and there was no realistic possibility of safe retreat. So, reasonableness is checked off for those two elements. As for the remaining elements of imminence and proportionality, was it reasonable for the shooter to perceive an imminent threat of serious bodily injury at the moment he presented his gun and then fired the single shot? On these facts, it would seem possible, but not likely, that a jury could be unanimously convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the shooter did not reasonably have a fear of imminent serious bodily harm. So, reasonableness is also arguably in favor of the claim of self-defense. And that's all the five elements, folks, and they're all arguably in favor of this shooter's claim of self-defense. 
Now, I don't know if the sheriff took this step-by-step approach to analyzing the use of force in this case, or if he arrived at the same conclusion by some other means, but in any case, that's the bottom line. On these facts, it is possible, but arguably not likely, that a prosecutor could convince a unanimous jury that self-defense had been disproven beyond a reasonable doubt. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash show. I also encourage you to visit our Law of Self-Defense Patreon page where we have free Law of Self-Defense blog content and optional higher value paid content for just $4.99 a month. Plus, for patrons, a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, or a DVD, your choice. Find all that at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Patreon. Remember, you carry, you carry a gun, a gun so, you're so you're hard to, hard to kill. kill. Know, know the, the law, law so you're so hard, hard to convict. convict. I'm attorney, I'm attorney Andrew, Andrew Branker for lawofselfdefense.com. Okay. Sound like we got some kind of weird echo there in the audio file from Andrew, but um, yeah. So we we talked about that case last week on the podcast. Obviously, um, I gave my thoughts on it then. Uh, I think Andrew makes a pretty pretty good case, you know, as far as because the standard is that a prosecutor must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this claim of self defense is not actually self defense that there it's likely that this man will not be charged and or convicted. Um, now whether that still makes this shooting the right thing or not, I don't know. I still go back to Jacob that I think it's a great lesson for each of us that are serious about carrying concealed and taking that responsibility seriously that you draw the gun like this guy did. And there's some, you know, a brief, period of time, like a second and a half. I know it's not a lot of time, but it is enough time because I know I've experienced it. I've been there. I mean, not, not experienced as far as like shooting somebody in this, this type of context. Right. But a second and a half is enough time to see and make a judgment call as to whether you should pull the trigger or not. And when that gun came out, that guy starts, he took a couple steps back and I, I'm feeling like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, not going to be found to maybe it's maybe it is not unjust or maybe it, I'm trying to say this right. Maybe it is justified per the way the law reads, but not necessarily still a good shoot. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, and that's what someone here, uh, Mark on Facebook, said, said something like, "Was he within the law? No, sure, but bad judgment." And I think you know when you hear from Andrew Branco, we got to remember that his his. His perspective is that of an attorney. So Andrew, yep. in this case, is, is trying to argue whether or not it made sense uh, for or, – or basically what he's trying to argue is why, in this case, would that jurisdiction choose to not prosecute this man? And he's saying, well, maybe they decided not to prosecute because, based on this criteria, they didn't think they could get a conviction. Yep. Okay. That, and, that, and that's totally valid. But, to, yeah, in terms of looking at it tactically and trying to look, take some lessons from it, um, I, I totally agree that – you know, when the gun came out, was it justified? Arguably, I would say yes. What when the trigger was pressed, the shots were fired, was that justified? I, I'd say no. I, I, I that's that's my two cents. Uh, watching the surveillance video, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Why are we shooting? <laughs> like that's how I felt. Yep. 
Um, I mean, but how I will many, say, how, how many stories do we share on the podcast where a gun is drawn and mm-hmm. that ends the, you know, that solves the sure, problem, right? Right. Which is fine. Yeah. Uh, I think that for me, the bigger, and I did not listen to you and Matthew's take on this last week, so hopefully I'm not being too repetitive. But to me, the biggest lessons learned in terms of what we can learn from it as gun owners from that incident is the, provoca- the provocation on both sides. Uh, and what I mean by that is you have a guy who's all you know angry about someone parking in a handicapped spot, which it pisses me off too, by the way, when I see people parking in a handicapped spot that shouldn't. Uh, but you know he, he gets all verbal and crazy and fanatic about it. That's that's not that's not a wise thing, especially when you got a gun on you. You're going to be held to higher legal standard, and you're you're provocate you're 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 creating an incident, uh, frankly, that you didn't need to create. Whether or not you're an aggressor or not, in legal sense, is not my point. And then I'll add that we can also learn something from the vic- the person who was shot and killed in this case, uh, the dead man. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can learn about you know from his his decision to come out and push a man to the ground in defense of his girly and and his parking job. Uh, and we can learn that, you know, we need to figure out how to de-escalate situations. Because even though this guy may have been all up and at it about the handicap spot, the guy could have come out and like, hey, dude, I'm going to park the car, yell at me, not my girlfriend. I'm sorry. I promise I'll move it. I didn't notice it was handicap or you know, whatever. Uh, thanks, dude. Like, calm down. <laughs> and, and you know, no one would have been shot. So I'm not saying that, that you know, his, his reaction earned him a death. I'm, I'm merely saying that there's some lessons we can learn there about two people who escalated a situation and neither of them totally. were interested in c- c- keeping one calm. Totally. By the way, I take offense at your use of the term girly. <laughs> oh, okay. I wonder if my wife would. I wonder if my wife would see her and I said, hey, girly? And she'd be like, don't call me that. She'd be like, hey. I'm pretty sure she'd just say, hey. <laughs> I don't think my wife would appreciate it. Okay, so, all right, no, g- good analysis. Thanks for sharing your thoughts since uh, we didn't get your thoughts last week. And I do think that between you, myself, and Matthew, we're all you know pretty closely aligned on, on our analysis of this uh, case. Okay, now back to that article from The Hill, hill.com, Judge Blocks Gun Control Group's Lawsuit to Stop Downloadable 3D Printed Guns. Now, last week we reported on the podcast uh, that uh, recently – this state department case where they were going after this guy uh, that, you know, was putting 3d print, you know, printed gun plans and stuff out there on the internet. They tried to shut him down and he basically won that case where the state department and the government itself as a whole has said, okay, we are not, we're not pursuing this any further. And not only that kind of went to the next level and, and seemed to suggest that, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> that in fact, it was they, they really completely reversed it, right? Because at first they're like, "Hey, this is a, this is a security threat to our country," right, right. And then they looked at all the evidence and what the guy was saying. They're like, "Oh, you know, what? never mind. We're good here. Let's dismiss this." Yeah, there was another thought I had, but I, there was a notification that popped up on my screen here, and I shouldn't have glanced at it. It derailed me. But anyway, so it's pretty interesting to see that now. Immediately after the State Department ruled on this case. Three gun control groups filed suit. The Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Every Town for Gun Safety, and the Giffords Law Center all argued um, in a lawsuit that the government, uh, you know, basically they should not be, they should not have dropped this case. Uh, but a federal judge said, no, sorry, tough beans. So that's that's all there is to basically report on this. Uh, it just looks like that this battle is getting quite a bit harder uh, for these anti-gunners to continue pursuing. So 
pretty pretty interesting to see there. And, and we've had some pretty interesting rulings in recent uh, weeks from federal courts uh, that have pretty much all been kind of in the you know leaning in the way of gun pro gun. Uh, uh, law or pro gun rights, uh, not necessarily going the other way. So that's that's good news. It doesn't always go that way. So we'll we'll keep hoping for this stuff. Okay. So here's another interesting one. This one doesn't go necessarily in in favor of gun rights. I guess depending on how you want to look at this. Um, it says here appeals court tees up interstate handgun sale ban for possible Supreme Court review. So this is on the NRAILA.org site um, last week. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit denied by one vote a request for a rehearing of the case by a full panel of the court and confirmed the reversal of a lower court decision that had ruled the interstate handgun sale sale ban to be unconstitutional. And this is a case known as Mance versus Sessions. This got started because uh, two plaintiffs, uh, actually, yeah, there's, there's, actually three individuals that are recognized as plaintiffs in this case, they wanted to purchase guns and they, but they were wanting to purchase them from a different state. And so we handguns specifically, right, right, right. Handguns. Uh, I said that in the, obviously in the title of the article, but so we've known for a long time that, you know, the law federal law in the U S is that basically with a few restrictions, you can buy a long gun or a shotgun from another state. Like I could drive into Kansas tomorrow and go and buy a rifle or a shotgun from just about any gun shop, you know, show them my ID, go through the same, you know, background check process, fill out all the same forms, and they'd sell me that long rifle or shotgun, and I'd bring it back home to Colorado. As long as that rifle is legal here in Colorado, no problem, right? But for years, we've had the federal law that prohibits handgun sales across state lines. So they basically sued in this case, saying that that law is unconstitutional. Their arguments behind that are, are, are I think, pretty interesting and, and, and fairly compelling, um, suggesting, well, and one of the reasons that, that they say that this law was implemented was because it's it was too difficult for FFLs, dealers, to understand all the different handgun laws of all these different states and stuff. And so... You know, how would they know whether they could sell a handgun to a certain individual if they couldn't understand all these laws? But the plaintiff's argue, argument in this case was that, well, they have no problem understanding a lot of those same laws where it comes to long rifles. So, you know, and we're in this day and age of technology and all this stuff's out there on the Internet. This law was established way back when, when we didn't have at our fingertips all these resources like we do today. And dealers have shown that they can be responsible and know how to, you know, responsibly sell guns to the right types of people. So they're basically saying that this law is antiquated, should go away, and that it, uh, you know, that we as citizens should have a right to buy whatever guns we want from whatever state, you know, that we want, a dealer, whatever, right? So um, a lower court ruled against the plaintiffs. They appealed to have a the 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 full panel of that circuit court to hear the case that that panel denied that but this could the next step would be to go to the supreme court so i would say that yeah. precedent would seem to show that the supreme court's been very hesitant to take on cases like this in recent uh, recent years 
Yeah, uh, this would be this is a great one to bring up. I, I I never really have thought about this one as like something we should go battle or fight. It is annoying though. I mean, it's annoying all the time. It's like, hey, I want to buy a gun from my friends uh, that are you know from a dealer that's in you know X other state. It's like, oh, you can't. Like, what do you mean I can't? <laughs> you know, like I can't walk into that dealer and run a have a go through a background check and walk out with a gun. No, you can't do it. I can do it with a long gun, just not a handgun. So I. I, it's, I don't know. It's just never, it's definitely something that's frustrating and annoying, but it's never really uh, hit me as being something that, you know, we should go to battle on. But uh, apparently Mance or, you know, the, the plaintiffs in this case feel differently. So I'm, well, I, I, I doubt it'll get picked up either. Who knows? Hey, Jacob, we just got a comment on Facebook. Hey to Matthew from Scott. So I think people think you're Matthew still. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know. I mean, do I look like a, First off, I'm not that old. You're not that good looking either. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, sure. But I'm not that old. I don't have any tattoos. Uh, and I definitely don't look like a Marine or an ex-cop. So I, I, I sure though, I'll take it. Like I don't I don't think <laughs> of it as an insult by any means. Oh, it's definitely not an insult. <laughs> Thanks. You felt very you said that very strongly. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's great. Hello, Scott. Um, all right, yeah. I kind of agree. I mean, I don't know that we need to, it's, it's not one of those things that's like a big battle to fight, but Hey, I'm all for it because I, I think that law is kind of stupid. We have a lot of stupid laws in this country as it deals with guns, uh, because those laws are likely not accomplishing anything. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, why, why, why have laws that are antiquated, that are draconian, that, you know, make no sense. Let's, let's do away with that stuff, especially when second amendment, which is a constitutional privilege uh that you know that should be taken very seriously as far as those restrictions all right fox eight uh this is in mississippi gulfport mississippi reports attorney general says gun restriction signs in courthouse illegal uh so apparently there is a courthouse in the gulfport area that uh, this is harrison county has had these this sign posted in the courthouse entrance you know no no guns basically right and but you know a number of years ago Mississippi passed what they call their enhanced concealed carry law and so they they're one of a couple of states that has an enhanced permit in addition to just a standard permit right and the enhanced permit gives permittees a few additional places where they can carry concealed that a standard permit does not that's basically the the difference as far as and it, it'll probably have a few more uh reciprocity states right that recognize that permit. So state law says that if you have an enhanced permit, you can carry in courthouses, maybe not necessarily in a courtroom. Okay. This is not untypical. Many States, in fact, I don't know if I've ever been anywhere, Jacob, where you could actually go into a courtroom with a firearm. Um, that's typically found to be acceptable, but I've got courthouses here in my backyard or close to it, you know, within within a few minutes distance of me where you can walk into that courthouse carrying concealed. Uh, they do have a sign saying you can't carry openly in a couple of these places, but, but not that you can't carry concealed. Similar issue in Mississippi, but the, basically the, Supreme, the state Supreme Court ruled that that county was in violation of state law because they were not allowing any weapons, period, in that courthouse. I'm, I, I guess uh, my two cents to add to this to create any additional value would be to say, 
I'm just grateful for a state that has an attorney general that's proactive on these kinds of things. Um, we've seen this happen in Texas in recent years and a couple other states too, where an attorney general has stepped up and said, hey, local you know, jurisdiction, city, county, whatever, you can't do that. Cut it out. And I, I, there are definitely other states where you know, s- local jurisdictions get away with doing bullcrap that they should be held out on, but no one cares enough. It's like, unless somebody gets arrested and busted and appeals this up to a court, we're just going to pretend it never happened. So I, I would just add that, uh, you know, props to the attorney general in Mississippi for you know, choosing to enforce their own law on their own local governments. Totally. Good stuff. So and that may affect a, a few of you. If you're in Mississippi listening to this podcast, uh, well, just know that the, ter- the attorney general just dropped the hammer <laughs> as far as making sure that that law is enforced. <clears throat> Over at the uh, firearmblog.com, I just saw this story yesterday. And uh, that's why I ended up on the outline today. I I found this pretty interesting. And this is quite the clarification from the ATF. The firearm blog reports that the ATF is classifying 50 caliber bolt action AR uppers as a firearm. Now, this is specific to, it's that specific because this is a letter that they wrote to Safety Harbor Firearms, which is a manufacturer that came up with this concept, this idea of manufacturing an upper assembly for an AR-15 platform rifle uh, that instead of being semi-automatic uses a bolt. And there's a couple other guns out there like this, uh, not necessarily always 50 caliber, uh, that uses a bolt to cycle the gun. And, you know, Safety Harbor has been making these 50 caliber upper receivers uh, they got a letter from the ATF because, and the letter actually says in there that because someone had requested a review on this type of uh, assembly, essentially, that you know it was a review for importation. So somebody was wanting to import something from overseas into the U.S. and they got to get approval from the ATF. Because of that, it brought to the ATF's attention that there's these other manufacturers out there here in the U.S doing similar things, making these uppers with bolts in them. Here's the thing. The ATF told Safety Harbor that their upper assemblies are classified as a firearm. Typically, with AR-15s, I've got I've got a lower re- receiver right here, right? This is the firearm. I have an unsecured firearm sitting here. <laughs> I think you've pointed this out before, Jacob. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, a, you know, blank... Uh, lower receiver for an AR. Okay, this is the firearm on an AR. It's what's recognized as the firearm component. Has the serial number, all that. You could buy everything else for this gun, except for this, without you know having to go through the proper channels. So, in this case, though, this is quite a, a deviation from that because of a very uh, detailed wording of definitions as to what a receiver is. And a definition of a receiver, it says here, is any part of a firearm that provides housing for the hammer, bolt, or breech block, and firing mechanism. Well, because this rifle has this bolt that you got to cycle, I think they're looking at that as this is a firearm. Now, this possibly opens up a whole other can of worms. And that's what this article also kind of touches on a little bit. If you guys will think about it for just a sec, 
realize that every AR-15 upper assembly contains a bolt. It might not be a manual one that you cycle with your hand, but there is a bolt, right? So there's some fear as to whether will the ATF start looking a little more closely at these definitions for other types of AR-15 style receivers, upper or lower, and assemblies. Hmm. What do you think, Jacob? Um, I think there's still a distinction there that is important to clarify, like when we're talking about a receiver. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, and they very specifically say the ATF has previously determined that non-standard AR type upper assemblies when attached to an AR type receiver does not preclude the upper assembly from being right. classified as a firearm receiver. So I'm, I'm not concerned no, I do find it interesting, but I, I don't think it warrants a ton of you know, uh, panic. But it is interesting that, that they're taking it that far, I think, even on the... I mean, like, that bolt, you know, bolt-action 50 caliber upper receiver assembly, uh, you can't do anything with it, <laughs> right? You, got, you right. still got to have this guy here that's serialed. Uh, you know, so I, I just, I find that really intriguing that they would take it so far. Like, can't we use a little discretion, Mr. ATF man, and look at it and go, well, you know, like, let's use some common sense here and realize, well, okay, technically it might be this, but in reality, that's not a complete firearm. So, you know, let's turn a blind eye, but they, they didn't. Um, that is, by the way, what you pointed out is, is key that they were referencing non-standard upper receivers. Um, obviously we know what I, I, I know I was just kind of thinking and, and throwing out like this, you know, what if type scenario, I don't think anything's going to happen to standard AR 15s, but where you have these non-standard things being manufactured, uh, I think that's why this, uh, warranted a closer look. I don't know. We'll see if anything goes, comes from that. Jacob, why don't you take this next story? This is from the USA today. Doctors urge Americans to learn tourniquet use. Yeah, so USC Today, I, I remember reading this one. I think Matthew is the one who found this one and shared it with us. And long story short, if I can be so bold as to just summarize, I think that I remember when I was a Boy Scout and we learned tourniquets. Tourniquets were taught then, and I think this would apply then to all of us who are adults today. We were taught that tourniquets were a last result and that if you used it, that limb was going to be lost for sure. Like, you know, you, it's, it's, it's worth it if it means to save a life, but you know, it's a last resort because when you put on a tourniquet, you know, on a leg, that leg is going to be gone. You put a tourniquet on an arm, that arm is going to be lost. We're going to we're going to have to, amp, you know, amputate. And so that was kind of the way we thought of tourniquets. And this article from USA, USA Today is pointing out what we've seen from the medical profession for the last, I'd call it, you know, three, five years, which is a strong emphasis on the fact that, you know what, we, we don't always lose limbs when we use tourniquets. And in fact, we're getting really good at saving those limbs, even when a tourniquet is applied. Uh, so tourniquets can go a long way to saving lives when used properly. And there's not as much risk maybe as we thought there was. So it, it's, a, it's a really good article. I think, you know, they, they have some good quotes in here from some really smart people and even an EMS supervisor for Denver paramedics. So there's the, they're good from Colorado and this little podcast, because we're going to have some ugly Colorado stories here in a minute. <laughs> so, I guess that would be my two cents is it, it really comes down to, you know, I think we, when we're on the range, uh, Rylan, when we're, you and I are teaching a class and we talk about medical and trauma, there's very few things we point out. We don't rip the thing open and say, guys, here's the band-aids. 
You know, we, we don't, we've never done that, but what are a couple of the things we always tell everybody where they can find during the course of a class? I, I make sure it's a point guys. You know, what we're doing today is dangerous. Somebody could get shot in the event that happens. One of the more likely places somebody will be shot would be in a, in a lower leg. That's, that is your greatest risk, right? In a class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have the, the chance of rupturing a femoral or other artery. So guys, where can you find tourniquets? Here and here and here. Oh, by the way, I have one on my ankle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we always point out where the tourniquets are. Um, and, and if anyone's unclear on how to apply them, we, we might demonstrate that quickly too. So to me, a tourniquet is part of just kind of a standard you know, thing you need to have. At all, you know, when, when you're in, involved in this kind of an industry, it's, it's protective gear, uh, similar to eyes and ear protection. I think of it that way. I think of when I go shooting, I bring eye and ear protection. I also bring a trauma kit. And that is going to include a tourniquet, among other things. So you know what anyway. you know what's crazy, Jacob, is we live in this time where frequently you read you, you hear about this horrible tragedy that happens. You know, Southern Texas, for instance, last week, some dude shot you know shot a bunch of people, right? And basically, like you read all the time where where a shooter shoots up a bunch of people, and you know there's gonna you know there's there's a couple on the scene that will be dead. Right, it's just because of the nature of their wounds, they're shot directly in the heart or aorta. They're shot in the head, you know, some other really critical place where they're they're going to pa- they're going to unfortunately pass uh, away, you know, very quickly within minutes, uh, perhaps even seconds. You got a bunch of other people that are wounded, probably severely in some cases, and it could even be an extremity wound. It could be a a, a gunshot wound in the leg that might actually be causing a lot of loss of blood. And at one time that might have resulted in them dying, but it would have take, taken, you know, a number of minutes perhaps for that to that, for that to occur. Frequently. Now we see these stories where if people don't die on the scene, meaning they make it to the hospital, they almost not, not always, but like nine times out of 10 probably make it. And that's actually what the statistic is for, I saw, I learned this in a law enforcement class a number of years ago, that for police officers that are shot in the line of duty, if they make it to the hospital, their odds of surviving that gunshot wound is like 95%. That's, that's awesome. I, I attribute a lot of this because of tourniquet use. We had this Denver cop that was shot during a traffic stop in a, in a leg. It was a serious injury. Would have resulted in him bleeding out if a tourniquet was not applied. A tourniquet was in fact used, saved his life. I remember seeing a, a dash or not dash cam, but a body cam video of an officer chasing a suspect. Shot that suspect um, in in one of the wounds, struck the femoral artery in the leg. I'll tell you, if you ever watch that video, if you ever find it uh, out there, it's out there. You're shocked at first at how much blood just in the five seconds it takes for that cop to get up to that suspect how much blood comes out of that dude's leg. And immediately that officer, upon making sure that, you know, everything's secure, grabs the tourniquet and applies it to that suspect's leg and saves that suspect's life. It's, it's, it's just amazing. Okay. So anyway, it's really cool to see stuff like this put out by a major, uh, media organization like USA Today saying, Americans learn how to use tourniquets. It will save lives. Stop the bleed. Right and and have one. You know, if you're yep. gonna if you're gonna go to the effort of having a first aid kit or a trauma kit or whatever in your car, your home, and at the range, like make sure there's a tourniquet in there. Yep, absolutely. All right, 
Vox.com. This is a ridiculous story. That's why we got to talk about it, right? One way to re- reduce gun deaths, restrict big bullets and guns. So, <clears throat> there is, so, I mean, Vox.com is not the greatest source of, of truthful, unbiased, you know, information. But uh, they report here that a JAMA study, that's the, oh, I used to know what that stood for. It's some medical organization. Um, <laughs> this is an association. I don't see what, it, but anyway. A, me- a medical association recently found that larger caliber firearms are much likelier to kill a shooting victim than smaller caliber ones. Of course, they have to. Dis- right, let's pause. Let's pause right there, Riley. <laughs> so, so let me just throw out a crazy thought for you. Before this article was published, if I had just come to you in, in a company meeting and said, "Hey, guys, I bet that if we did the numbers, if we ran the data, that people who get shot." with higher caliber ammunition, whatever, bullets, sure, um, are probably less likely to survive. What do y'all think? What would the consensus have been? <laughs> I think we would have been like, hmm, yeah, maybe, sure. Like, that doesn't sound crazy. To, to, and, and I'll add, like, to me, looking at this data, they, they, they analyzed hundreds of shootings in Boston between 2010 and 2014. Um, I, I don't I don't look at this and say bull crap. I look right, at it and say, right. eh, okay, maybe, sure, but so what? I think I think that to me this is one of those things where the data may be viable, but I don't think that it tells the story you're trying to tell. Because the story here is, well, maybe if we want to save lives, we just need to eliminate some of these higher caliber uh, ammunition, and then and then that'll stop the violence. Like yeah. like somehow telling you know gangbangers they can't have. 45 ACP or 40 Smith and Wesson will somehow, uh, you know, mean that we'll have less gun violence, um, and and that that's where I think we we run into you know the rubber hits the road on this kind of stuff. It's like interesting, you know, study. Uh, I I even would call it believable. Sure, like bigger holes, more likely to die. Sure, like but so what? Like, what's your point? Like, how does this how does this help us? There's no actionable intel here for me. Yeah. Now, uh, their big focus is on handguns, but I find it pretty pretty comical almost in a way because there's a graphic that's used here, and it does show all of these pistol calibers up to the very last one, and then it shows a 7.62 by 39, so a AK-47 style round. So they're they're all pistol rounds, and then in the large caliber category, which actually by caliber definition. It actually doesn't qualify as large caliber, but it, we know it is a higher. You know, it's definitely, it's higher powered than everything else on this list. But I just find it funny that they use uh, that very last bullet or cartridge is a is a rifle round. But anyway, yeah. So Journal of American Medical of the American Medical Association. That's what I was trying to get out. This is a JAMA study, right? Jacob is apparently sharing. Oh, there we go. He's sharing the graphic. There you go. Boom. Yeah, so <laughs> 22 long rifle, 25. So this is what they call small caliber. And this is the big takeaway. This is what JAMA, this is what the doctors are saying that were behind this study. That we should be encouraging. That's kind of what I get from this. That we should be moving away from large and medium caliber rounds to small caliber because people are more likely to survive. And by small caliber, this is there's three of them in this list: 22 long rifle, 25 auto, 
and 32 auto. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a second you hit 380 auto, now we're talking about medium caliber. And listed in medium are 380 auto, 9 millimeter, and 38 special. <laughs> right. So those are your medium caliber, which we, according to the author, we should probably be getting away from. Because if, if we got rid of these medium caliber rounds, you know, I mean, how many of our audience would be insulted to, you know, for us to suggest they should carry a nine millimeter? You know, we got, we got a lot of people who are like, that is way beneath me. Like, the, that well, is way too wussy. By the way, what's the one round or caliber that they, that they miss in a large It's not caliber? even on the chart at all. 45 ACP. It's not even here. Like, what the, well, you know, probably your second or third most, most common handgun caliber in the country is not even on this chart. <laughs> this is what you get when you have a bunch of supposed know-it-alls that know nothing about guns put try to put together a study right they they forget the 45 acp but they include when they sit, when they tell you they're folk, you know they're talking about handguns primarily they forget the 45 and they include a rifle round but anyway so <laughs> um that's what i get from this jacob is that this is just more like propaganda that's saying look maybe we should consider some gun control that limits people in the size of caliber of gun that they can carry or the power factor perhaps, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And boy, I I would hate to see it come to that. My goodness. Oh, I will say this just because I, I I couldn't and, and I can, I do commend anyone's attempt to come up with new creative solutions to, uh, violence and, and crime. So, is this is this a good idea or solution? No, this is stupid and ridiculous. But thank you for having at least an attempt at an out of the box idea. Yeah. By the way, Vox does present a counter argument here, and they share here. Uh, this was coming from. I'm not sure where they're quoting from. Oh, from the Washington Post. It's a Washington Post article they're quoting this from. This view is widespread among experts and referring to this common view that guns don't kill people, people kill people, which, I mean, I think we agree on that. Um, This is a widespread among experts who take a permissive attitude towards gun regulation. A RAND Corp study published earlier this year, for instance, surveyed a group of gun experts who generally favored fewer gun restrictions, asking what would happen if a given gun policy was successful at reducing gun homicides. On average, those experts believed that about 90% of the prevented gun homicides would simply end up as homicides by other means. That rejects a belief that homicidal intent or that reflects a belief that homicidal intent is the key factor driving the lethality of gun violence. I think we would tend to agree on that. We're seeing in a country like the UK that has had gun control, you know, in place severe to where you can't even basically own a handgun period. You certainly can't carry anything like it or even close to it. Can't even carry a knife for self-defense in the UK. And we're seeing this rash of murders and other violent crime. I mean, one statistic that we saw and we have shared on the on the program is that in the last year, knife-related and violent crime has gone up like 40% in the UK. It's crazy, right? All right, so there's that piece, right? Like we tend to agree. Here's what I what I would say, Jacob. Like they're saying that this JAMA study challenges that notion that some guns simply are manufactured to be more lethal than others. It suggests that identical shooters with identical intent would kill fewer people if they had access only to less powerful firearms. What's the irony here? You think gangbangers are stupid? You know, (laughs) like, 
oh, well, they want us to use smaller guns. Okay, we'll use smaller guns. We'll still shoot people, but we'll use smaller guns. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not uh, stupid. Me, they're the, they're going to go the, for the bigger caliber guns. <laughs> that, to me, the, the horrible part of this is that we once again are forgetting that the primary purpose of the gun is to save human life. That is why guns were invented. That is why guns are manufactured. That's why we're, I mean, there's other applications, right? We have competitive shooting and hunting and this and that sort of thing. But they're completely disregarding that. Let me, I mean, if we, if, if, if I were, if I were sitting in the room when this, when this article was being written and I had said, so are you suggesting law enforcement officers then only use small calibers? I would love to hear what the author would mm-hmm. say to that. You right. know, it's like, oh, would they say, oh yeah, no, totally. We don't want cops, you know, putting bigger holes than we need to in people. No, that's ridiculous. Of course we want our cops to have the most effective ammunition and gun <laughs> possible. So anyway, that, 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 that's the key here is that we forget that there's, there's the defensive use of the firearm is, is why yeah. these things exist. By the way, and, and I think this comes out if you look at the study a little bit closer, but basically I think the way they're classifying this is their small caliber, which is the 22, 25 and 32s and basically everything else. Everything else is too much. So I know there's some guys who be like, well, that nine millimeters in that medium caliber category. So it must be less lethal than say like a 40 or 45. But guys, I'll just be tr- straight with you. Statistics in recent history are showing that shootings with nine millimeter and 40 and 45 are all pretty, they're on, they have, it's, they're on, they're basically equals as far as the lethality of those shootings. Okay. So I wouldn't read into this too far and say, well, nine's classified as medium. That may be true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's dramatically less lethal than these other so-called large caliber rounds. Okay. Now we've definitely classified as medium by people who forgot the 45 ACP. Right. And compared it to a rifle round. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we can definitely agree that 22s, 25s, and 32s are very underwhelmingly uh, powered. But all right, got to move along here. And Jacob's got a got a hard stop coming up. So Chuck Schumer goes full semi-automatic. Not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just uh, like a week or so ago, he was speaking and said that uh, uh, America is going to get a lot less safe. He's referring to these 3D printed firearms. Okay. So in other words, this is a travesty that this case uh, went the way that it did as far as now, you know, 3D printed firearms, just they can't be, those those files can't be regulated the way they wanted to regulate them. He's saying this is going to make America a lot less safe um, and that such firearms are not only scary, they're outright dangerous in the way they can mimic the look and the capacity of a hardened, fully semi-automatic weapon. <laughs> So yeah, all right. I guess they yeah, are and, doubling down on the on the stupid here, but whatever. And then Mom's Demand Action reposted his Twitter his, his comment on their Twitter feed. Yep. So we got Schumer who's an idiot, and then we got a, a group who is a gun control group who retweets that sucker. Yep. Well, you know this this just goes this just proves my I've made the point before that the this side of this argument, okay. These people, the anti-gunners, they are experts at using language uh, and and semantics to, you know, they're very good at twisting things in such a way and using things in a way, using language in a way that helps further their cause, right? And by them using, you know, even if they are completely wrong, and I'll bet you they know they're completely wrong in using such a term as fully semi-automatic, how stupid it sounds. But for their cause, it's beautiful because 
they're not necessarily saying anything that's untrue, right? Something that's fully semi-automatic, well, yeah, every semi-automatic is fully semi-automatic. That's not untrue, but it it sort of caters to, you know, that 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 image, that you know, philosophy that they're, you know, what that they're trying to push, their their agenda that they're trying to, you know, further with their with their people, with their crowds. You could be right. Or it could just be that they're stupid. I, I, I don't know. Either way, it's a problem. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, I'm going to jump now to the Aurora officer responds to break in kills armed resident story. So this is our first story out of Colorado that just happened the last couple of days. Uh, this one in particular just happened, I think, last night. And uh, this is this is sad. <laughs> this is this is not cool. And I do want to emphasize, we talked a little bit ago as we sort of introed this, this does not happen that often. In fact, hardly ever. I'm not really aware of any other scenario quite like this one. Now, facts are still very few. We don't know. We don't. I don't know if we know where this man was shot, whether it was inside the home or outside the home. Because I could think of one other instance where police were responding to an incident, Jacob, and they confused a good guy as a bad guy, and they shot him, but not lethally, and he, he so he didn't die. He recovered, all is well, okay. And part of the reason they probably you know thought he was a bad guy is because they encountered him outside of I think it was an apartment building. They encountered him outside, and he probably shouldn't have been there in the first place because I think he was trying to go after the bad guy. And so what what did police see when they showed up on the scene? They saw a guy with a gun running down between like apartment buildings. And so they shot him. This story is a little different. We have a homeowner that has a break-in. This happened in Aurora, Colorado. That's kind of in the big Denver metro area here. And a break-in occurs. 911 is called. Apparently in this break-in, by the way, a resident, a, a juvenile resident, some a young boy was injured. So clearly something is wrong. Something bad is going down. An intruder is in the home that shouldn't be there. 911 is called. The homeowner, a male homeowner, uh, and we we just saw reported just a few minutes ago, it popped up as a notification here, that they've identified him as a veteran, a, a Vietnam vet, unfortunately. But he grabbed his gun and he shot and killed the intruder. And then all we know at this point is that cops showed up sometime close to that time, actually, because they said that what we what we do know is that cops heard shots fired as they arrived on the scene. So there's this is a chaotic scene, you know, meaning cops know that something's going down. They're responding very rapidly as they arrive. Shots are being fired. And then at some point they encounter the homeowner with, I assume, his gun in his hand and they shoot and kill him thinking he's the bad guy, right? Yep. Problematic. Now, yep. there's a lot of reasons why these things generally don't happen. And, you know, you're the, whoever taught you your class or any classes you've ever attended, and if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you've probably heard the diatribe that the instructors like us always give people. Things like, well, when the, when the cops show up, make sure that you put your gun down or that you identify yourself or, you know, that you put the gun away or you know, whatever. I remember the the stinky sock comment that created quite the, the, the drama here on the podcast many, <laughs> many an episode ago. But, uh, you know, you've, you've heard these things. And 
we also talk a lot about identifying yourself in the 911 call. Now, in this case, the veteran, the homeowner who shot the bad guy and, and then subsequently was shot by the law, by law enforcement, is not the one who called 911. Uh, what we know is it says that uh, the incident started with multiple 911 calls just before 1.30 a.m. And it says, according to the news release, a woman called 911 and said a man was breaking into her home. So we know that the person who was, uh, who was, you know, the good guy who was shot and killed in this case was not the person who called 911. That we know. So, that we know as far as, yeah. So it, right. maybe he also called 911. But what, what we know right now paints the picture that a female, maybe, maybe the homeowner's wife, uh, for example, called 911 and was on the phone, you know, was, was the one communicating with dispatch when, you know, it, it, during this incident. So we don't know if that woman said, hey, my husband's here. Oh, my husband just shot him. Oh, my husband's arm. We don't know if dispatch even asked, you know, is, are you alone? Is there anyone else in the home with you? Are there any firearms in the home? We don't know. And, and even maybe if that conversation took place, we don't know if dispatch uh, told the responding officers what they would need to know to be aware that there was an armed good guy on the scene uh, and that they needed to look for that. Uh, so, so those are all things we don't know, but I think it does go to kind of further communicate and illustrate the importance of some of those things that we talk to uh, or we, we teach students that, you know, when whoever's calling 911 needs to be trained, needs to be aware of the value and the importance of what needs to be communicated. And a high priority there would be that there is someone responding with a firearm and, and what that looks like. That way an officer is going to be much better informed, know what to look for and, and things along those lines. So anyway, a couple of quick thoughts there for me. Yeah. Yeah, the 911 calls, I assume that will be released. I, I think this is a high-profile enough incident that uh, it may take a little bit of time, but I think this stuff will come out eventually, and uh, it'll be very telling once we start getting more of the facts. And I suspect there's going to be many lessons to be learned from this incident. I believe that there's probably some mistakes made by the homeowner with the gun, all right? I suspect there could be some mistakes made by the responding law enforcement. Um, it's possible. I don't know. <clears throat> but what, what what I think we can definitely take away from this is that we always, anytime we pick up a gun, we always are assuming some amount of risk. Fortunately, like 99 point some odd percent, like plus percent of the time, when good guys pick up guns to defend themselves, they don't get shot by the responding cops. We've interviewed a couple of people that have been there on scene with gun in hand, you know, that have shot somebody and cops show up. But what's, what's key here? Communication is very key. What is said to dispatch must be clear. It needs, you know, they need to understand who you are, how to identify you. They need to be able to pass that on along to the responding officers in an effective and clear way. And assuming you don't put yourself at greater risk, meaning from the bad guy, it's not a bad idea to put the gun, you know, away, either put it down or put it in a holster, you know, when you recognize that police are getting close or they are showing up on scene so that, you know, there's no, there's just, but there's a lot of things that could be done communication wise. Body language can be really key. I don't know. It'd be interesting if we had any sort of video that might, you know, body cam video. I don't know. Would be interesting to see what the responding officer saw. Okay. But, you know, if you're a guy and you've got a, you're holding your gun and you're holding it kind of 
out or even kind of at a low ready might not be as good as some other things that you could do that would look non-threatening. So anyway, now we've got this other story from Colorado. <clears throat> Man in Ca- Castle Rock shoots wife because he thought she was an intruder. Mm-hmm. Jacob? Uh-oh. Yeah, so another one where we don't have a ton of detail. Very uh, little, in fact. Yeah, it, it's it's not good. Um, what we, In fact, most of what we know is from what the neighbor has told the, the news reporter, the Fox uh, news reporter. Um, but basically, we know that a man called the police, uh, called 911, and told them over the phone that he shot his wife on Friday night because he thought she was an intruder. So this would not be the first time this has happened. It would not be the first time that we've had somebody shoot their own wife or a family member mistaking them as an intruder. Um, it, it actually, you know, it feels like since we've been doing this podcast, you know, how we're about two and a half years into this, Riley, it yep. feels like we've had five or six of these, uh, you know, mistaken yeah. identity. We had one where he, he shot his wife in the ear. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, and we've had, some of them are a little bit more unique where like, I remember the one where, you know, the boyfriend that it's, that the girl had let in to the house, the dad didn't know the boyfriend was there, but, but it was not an intruder in the traditional sense. Uh, he got shot. Yeah, so we had one I, too with uh, a father that shot and killed his daughter because yeah. she was like playing hooky from school. In other words, he wasn't expecting her to come home and she apparently wasn't expecting him to be there. So she comes in and he's like, what the heck? Who are you? And she's like wearing a hoodie. You couldn't really see her face or something. He shoots her. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah. So I don't have a ton of you know great ideas other than Obviously, you know, the, one of those core gun safety rules that we need to identify our target before we shoot at it. I, I'm on record as have of, of calling this the triple S disease, right? The, the tendency to shoot at shapes, shadows, and sounds, hmm. uh, you know, as opposed to clearly identified targets. We, I, I will just throw out an interesting fact. We did a survey recently. We sent this out, went out to our email list and we said, hey, we're looking for feedback about some home response related questions. And there's a, there was a, it's a long survey. Many of you probably took it. We've had a couple thousand responses. But one thing very specifically uh, that I thought was interesting in the survey is, let's see here. Let me find if I can, I'm, I'm scrolling through finding it. But we asked people in, in a home defense situation, would you retreat to a safe room or would you advance toward the threat? Uh, and, and I realized that, you know, some things are situation dependent. So I think there was another option that said something like, you know, other, or I don't know, or something like that. Um, but we, we let people just, you know, uh, oh, here it is. Here it is. In the case of a break in your home, what would you do? Option A, advance toward the possible threat. Option two, retreat to a safe room. And option three is other. So it might surprise you to know that 40.8%, the number one top response to this question was, I would advance toward the possible threat. Yeah. And there might be some situations where that's absolutely justified, but you know, this is one of those situations where when we advance, we eliminate time. We put ourselves in a situation where we don't have as much opportunity because we're we're being aggressive instead of defensive, right? And so, I don't know. I'm just thinking that a wife would probably respond to a verbal warning, and you might have a better opportunity to provide a verbal warning if you were retreating instead of advancing. And if you were really retreating to a place where, you know, you and your wife, you usually are like your bedroom in the middle of the night, you might notice, Oh, my wife's not in the bed right now. She must be up and walking around. It must be her. Yep. You know, uh, this is something I could see. I mean, this happens in my house like every night, right? Where after I got the kids down for bed, my wife and I are, we, we often retreat to our family room, which is downstairs. 
to hang out, play a game, watch a television show, whatever it is. And the kids are upstairs asleep. And what happens every night? One of those kids gets out of bed. They get up. They don't go to sleep when they're supposed to. And a lot of times I hear a noise upstairs and I go, oh, kid's out of bed. Got to go upstairs. I I probably had the opposite issue as far as like, I'm going to go upstairs potentially thinking that I have a child out of bed and might actually be confronted with a home intruder, right? But the fact is, is we, we have to, we, we can't, uh, we can't make assumptions. We, you, you talked about the triple S disease, you know, shooting at, uh, uh, what is it? Shadows, shapes, and sounds, right? Well, uh, there was this, this shadow, you know, I didn't know who he was. So I shot him. Oh, it was my wife. Dang. You know, I mean, or you hear a bump in the night and, and, and you shoot towards it because you think there's a threat there. Like we, we can't pull the trigger unless we've identified what we're pulling that trigger out. Too many times people get themselves in trouble pulling the trigger before they have clearly identified what it is that they're pulling the trigger. At. Now I'll tell you what, I've been in some situations where I've, you know, you have that hair raising up on, on your neck, the back of your neck. We had an incident, in our, you know, near our home a couple of years ago where I thought something was going on in or on or around my home. It was next to my home, but it wasn't targeted at me, but there was some really loud, you know, like banging noises that sound like somebody could be breaking into something, right? And it makes your hair stand up on edge, especially when it wakes you up at 2.30 in the morning and you don't know what's going on. You, <laughs> My first thing was not grab my gun just so that it's clear, okay? My first thing was make sure my wife is good, my children are good, that 911 is being called, and in the few seconds, you know, in about the 15 seconds that it took me to just take a quick assessment, what's going on here? Where's my family at? You know, are we okay momentarily? That was enough to start kind of getting the head clearing. You know, as I got woken up a little more, okay, I was still hyped up, heart's racing, okay, but I did grab my gun, but I, I grabbed the gun in a holster and stuck it on. I didn't go walking down the hall with my gun outstretched looking for a bad guy and encounter my child in the hallway where you get surprised and then you shoot. Not only that, Jacob, it's maybe not the three S's, maybe it's the four S's, shape, sat, shadow, sound, and surprises. Oh, sorry, I Riley. People, I've been saying triple S disease for too long. You I, can't. <laughs> I, I think there's plenty of people that shoot when they are surprised by something. That's a problem too. So these are all really, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I'm going to stop. We got to move along, but take from this what you will folks listening. You've got to be responsible and you need to try not to, you know, like you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta see, you gotta identify, recognize threat, non-threat, and then make the decision to shoot or not shoot. Don't, you can't get any of those things out of order. So good lessons to be learned here. Well, and we, the next story we're going to talk about kind of has a little to do with this too. Woman shoots neighbor after he mistakes her, her home for his own. This is not the first time this has happened either. Now, I don't know how someone totally mistakes uh, their, their neighbor's home for their own home. Although, Jacob, I think there is another party that's potentially responsible for this type of mis- mishap. And Those I'm gonna, horrible builders. I'm going to blame the builders. That's right. Yeah. 
Stop Jeez, building stop these making... houses that look exactly the same. Get it. Well, this case, you know, this is more almost like, um, I mean, I'm trying to figure out from the pictures. If it, it's hard to tell because, I mean, the, the, they do look identical. And it's hard to tell if it's even like apartment complex or if they're actual single family dwellings. It really doesn't matter. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean. It does happen more often, we think, and it could be someone's had a few drinks. They took a taxi home and got dropped off in front of the wrong house, thought it was their house, tried to walk in. Yep. Now, this is our first story in our Justified Save stories today. Now, why is this justified? Well, there's some there's some critical points to this story. This was a neighbor, but he's trying to get into the wrong house. He walked up to the front door, tried to get in. The woman warned the man that she was armed, and after he tried to get into the house again, then she shot him. Now, this is interesting. Through the frame of her front door. So she didn't allow him to actually get into the house. She actually shot him while outside of the house. Now, this could be one of those situations or areas that could get a little gray. As far as, I don't know whether this is advisable or not, but I wasn't there. And I don't know all, this, all the facts of the situation either. We know we had a guy that was very insistent on getting in and a lady that told him to knock it off and that she was armed and he could, you know, like that's probably not unreasonable as you're thinking about this. If you tell somebody, I got a gun, you come in here, I'm going to shoot you and they continue to try to get in. Well, because <laughs> any rational person would probably stop trying to get in when they know that you might shoot them. Yeah, I, I, and to your point, it's justified, right? Like if I was the DA, would I press charges? I would not. Uh, but on the same token, shooting through door frames sure does make it pretty hard to identify your target, uh, which you know was something we just got done talking about. It also, and, and I understand that this idea is like you know my my home is my castle, and I want to defend my home. And once you've crossed the threshold of my castle, you know I I it's more challenging for me. It's gonna be more difficult. That's valid. But I also can buy time if I have other a safe room in the house I can retreat into. I can give that warning. And I can say, you know what? If I then retreat up into my safe room, which also has a locked, a lockable, reinforceable door, from there I'm gonna have more time. I can call 911. I can get law enforcement on the way. I can hopefully have more opportunities to identify identify my threat, give more verbal warnings. Uh, but you know, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know all the detail here. But uh, you know, shooting shooting through the door frame. <sighs> Probably, you know, I, I would call it not ideal, but perhaps required sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it could be that she identified him. I mean, uh, as far as it, there's a kind of a storm door here that she might have been looking through uh, when the shot was fired. Maybe she didn't mean to actually shoot through the door frame, but didn't have very good control of the muzzle. I don't know. But in, an interesting story nonetheless. Um, well, I'll, I'll add, that, and this is something I've said many times in this podcast, but this is also an argument for actually like knowing your neighbors, <laughs> right? Totally. Totally. Right. I, I mean, I, I don't know every single person lives on my street, but I know the people on either side, I would, I, I would be able to recognize them. I think even right. in the dark, I know the people who live across the street pretty well. I think, you know, I, I would say the seven to eight homes closest to me, I could identify those people in the dark. So, sure. you know, do you know your neighbors? Uh, you know, how, how good of a, of a neighbor are you? And, and that, that's also part of what makes America great is that we need to be good neighbors. And part of that is actually being able to recognize who that person is. Yeah. Yep. All right. Armored truck driver shoots would be robber to death at cash store in Southeast Houston. This one I thought was interesting. It stood out to me because this is not a scenario that 
I've really come across much, if at all. I'm not sure if we've done a story on the podcast where it's an armored truck, you know, driver, a, sec- uh, a security guard that uh, had to defend himself. So this happened at a check cashing store. Uh, you know, they do short-term loans and all that stuff, uh, typically. Basically, what happened is you had an armored truck uh, vehicle that pulls up in front. Uh, you know, a security guard gets out with his money bag, goes in to collect the money. And as he's uh, doing so or about to leave or whatever, a suspect who came into the store and pretended to, you know, just kind of be like another customer, uh, but waited for the right opportunity. So they obviously kind of probably had somewhat of an idea. This is my, my, my prediction that they kind of probably scouted this out a little bit and knew about, you know, between this time and this time is about when the money truck shows up. That's, that's just, this just seems pretty interesting and, and quite rather targeted uh, potentially at this uh, this guy. And so uh, he then attacks the security guard, tries to take the money bag, but the security guard pulls his gun and shoots the suspect. Not very smart. I mean, well, a lot I of think the, there's some details there that are really relevant that you're leaving. You can out. you can give the detail. I'm giving I'm giving the quick summary. Like this is kind of like on a surface on the surface. This is from sure. a high level. This yeah. is what happened, right? Yeah, and, this and, is a person who seemed very deliberate in, in in having planned what they did and chose to attack a armed security guard in, in broad daylight. So that's yeah, all true. Not very smart. Yeah, probably not. Now, it says here, a wrestling match. Uh, okay, there was a confrontation, a fight over the money bag, a wrestling match, but the suspect did manage to get the bag away from the security guard. The guard then pulled his gun and shot at the suspect, recovering the bag. Yeah. So, now this is interesting because ultimately, it would seem to me that the actions of the security driver uh, really wanted to... You know, it, it seems to me that he felt like his his objective was to use any force necessary, including his firearm, to protect the money. I don't know. I think there's some details that maybe are left out. Uh, we don't know. I mean, that I, I hear what you're saying, right? You know, like what that suspect wants is the money, and he apparently got that bag and then was shot. Like that, I totally see where you're going. Um, at the same time, did this guy have any weapons? It doesn't really say clearly in the story that it hasn't, that, that the suspect had any weapons. Right. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing that would suggest he did. Yep. So I, you know, I don't, still, I, I don't foresee any charges being pressed in this instance. And also there could be, I don't know. This is Texas, man. There could be some, well, actually, Come to think of it, isn't Texas one of those few states where in some select circumstances you can protect property with a gun? Yeah, and I've never made a point of really studying it out. So I, I know that only because other people have said that. Uh, so I don't know what those select circumstances are. But speaking you know, more broadly, if, if I was an armored truck driver, and I used to teach and license armored truck drivers, uh, I, I certainly would never tell them that, hey, you know, in a fight over the money, no, it's okay to shoot someone. You know, do I want you to, to wrestle with that person and try and maintain control of the money bag? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, but do I want you to shoot them to keep them from escaping with the money bag? I do not. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, we need to be focused on life. Um, you know, that money, yeah, that's your job is obviously to retrieve money, transport money, protect that money because that's what you're paid to do. Uh, but deadly force, mm, it's just, you know, money's money. Right. We'd always get more money. 
It's probably insured too. Yeah. Channel News 3, out of Memphis, Tennessee, woman fends off East Memphis home intruders with shotgun. There's some video that accompanies this story. I would encourage you to go, and as always, we share the links to all the stories uh, in the podcast episodes, in the show notes of the episode, and if you're participating on Facebook, we do our best to drop those links in the Facebook comments as well. Um, this one is interesting, because if you watch the video, and if you listen to the statement from the homeowner, a female homeowner, there's something that jumps out at me just a little bit, Jacob. So the story goes, this lady is, she's getting ready for bed one, late one night. Um, about that time, she hears some loud banging and knocking at, at her front door. She goes to the front door. She's trying to identify who's there. Is a little unclear as to what's going on. About that point, she hears a big bang from her back door, which has a, it's got glass in the upper portion of it. And someone has busted through the glass and apparently is trying to get in. She, at that point, grabs her shotgun that her husband said that he, she should use in case of self-protection and runs over. And this is, this is her statement. Uh, she says, as soon as that window burst, I'm running right at her and I am jamming that gun through the door at her. Apparently, though, that was enough. You know, seeing a 12-gauge barrel pointing at you is, is all the persuasion you need to go, okay, uh, wrong house. We'll go somewhere else. Thank you very much. But did you pick up on what kind of stood out at me? Oh, you're muted, Jacob. Oh, there we go. You know, uh, for I, I don't know exactly what you're thinking, but there's a couple of things that come to my mind. I thought it was interesting that you know when this barrel protrudes through the broken glass, uh, the BG just you know very calmly raises their hand and walks back to the curtain and gets in the getaway car. There's no panic. There's no scream. There's no, oh, crap, I'm going to get shot. It's just, a, oh, you're one of those people with a gun. Okay, it's cool. Um, and that seems very unexpected uh, un, un, uh, to me. Um, so my two cents there. Yeah. I suspect you're going to point out something that seems a little bit off between the statement of the person and what we see in the, in the video. But uh, I guess my two cents would be a couple things. One, why did we wait to go get the gun? Sure. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't understand. Like, oh, now that the glass is broken. My second thought would be, why are we sticking the gun through the window? And I can see how that'd be a very natural kind of instinctive, like, oh, you'll you'll see it if I stick it through this for sure, and that'll scare you. Yep. Um, but it also is a great way to lose control of the gun, right? Yep. So those are the things uh, that stuck out to me. I'm, I'm yep. curious to know what you're thinking. No, that, that was what stood out to me was I thought it was interesting that she stuck the, the muzzle of the shotgun through the broken you know window. Uh, I, I don't think that was the smartest thing tactically. Uh, you might, and by the way, you might, you might be focused on what you can see directly in front of you. You see this, this, and it was actually a female suspect. You might just see that woman standing there. And so you're focused on her and you're sticking that muzzle through the opening of the window, but there might actually be an accomplice that is off to the side that you don't see that might not necessarily be immediately in danger of that shotgun being fired and thus sees an opportunity to grab that shotgun and, and yank it from you. So it's it's not any different than handgun retention where we don't stick guns right in the faces of, of, of the people that we're, you know, defending ourselves against because that's inviting a gun takeaway. So uh, that was the th definitely the thing that I was like, hmm, okay, we can work on the tactics there a little bit. That's okay. You know, you've never been through this before. We could forgive that. But it's not, you know, we had a, somebody comment on the podcast you know, oh, you guys just, you know, armchair quarterbacking everything. Well, I mean, that yeah, that's what we're doing. But it's not to necessarily, I mean, sometimes we make fun of people. Some, sometimes people are dumb. But but the whole point here is to 
learn from these instances. I hope none of us has to actually touch the hot stove to find that it is actually hot. I hope we never have to actually be in these types of situations. But in the event that we are, I hope we don't find out in that situation that, you know, the the wrong way to do things. And so we share these stories and we sometimes point out the, the, the things that don't go quite the way they probably ought to in a hope that you learn what not to do and what to do a little bit better. Yep. Yeah. Let's, uh, we got one more story here we're going to cover, and this one's out of Milwaukee. An attempted robbery at a Milwaukee gas station was thwarted when a citizen shot the robber. The interesting thing of this story, Jacob, <laughs> basically, and it sounds like it's a third-party CCWer, you know, good guy, okay, because we had a 21-year-old male suspect attempting to rob a 33-year-old man. No, actually, as I read this again, I, I, I got this mistaken. It When I first read this, went through the story, I, I pictured it a little bit differently. When that man who was a CCW permit holder, shot the suspect, but apparently shot him in the butt. <laughs> That's why I had I had to leave this story in the outline because the headline is Milwaukee police robbery foiled after citizen shoots suspect in butt. That's what it says. Yeah. Good job, Fox. So <laughs> yeah, the way I, I it's kind of confusing because as I, I watched the video too, and I went through it and it did, it definitely left me with an impression that, um, the, the the respondent, the CCW permit holder, is not the clerk behind the station. That he's not shooting in order to defend cash or you know property. Uh, it gives you a very clear sense that um, the the 21 year old suspect was 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 against this man. That it was a one on one kind of engagement, me against you kind of thing. Uh, but you know, as I read kind of through, as as you watch this, the surveillance video. I'm not so sure that's the case. To me, this could be another great debatable one like the Florida one. Uh, it's it's worth watching the video because it, it tells a kind of a different kind of story. It, almost like the CCW were almost chased down the attempted robber and shot him in the back, literally the butt. But, you know, the, the, as the as the as the criminal was was looking away and attempting to flee almost is, is how I would interpret the surveillance video. So something something worth watching the video. Yeah, I agree. You got to look at the video. It, it is one of those things where it's like, hmm, you know, <sighs> good lessons learned. Okay, you know, I if they're if they're already on their way out the door or oh, across the parking lot, if they're turning away, I mean, there's there's some. I think there's some forgiveness, some some leeway that can exist when you're still pretty much up face to face with them. Just because someone turns away even briefly does not necessarily mean that you shouldn't, you know, potentially need to still use deadly force on them. Um, but but it's just one of those things where like we gotta be making sure that that up here, like this is the weapon, right? The brain is the weapon. Not not the gun in the hand. The brain is the weapon. Uh, in that it has to be working, it has to be operating. It's got you got to be processing information coming in and making appropriate choices based on that information coming in. We did a whole episode once on OODA loop, right? Observe, orient, decide, act. That OODA loop is key. Uh, you know, and if that OODA loop gets interrupted, you know that's that's something we we got to get back on track. And honestly, that's a goal of ours too. We, we we're trying to interrupt the OODA loop of our of our adversary, to be honest with you. But we still need to be able to, if something interrupts it, or something doesn't go the way we expect it to, whatever it is, like we still have to be observing, orienting, which means 
you know, thinking about what you're observing, what that means, what it looks like, what, what, what is actually happening here? You know, am I up? Am I down? Am I left? Am I right? You know, that would be the pilot's perspective, but it's true even down on the street as far as what I just observed, what does that mean contextually, right? And then deciding upon that, what I, what do I got to do? And when that decision is made, you know, that, that's, that's where the action comes into play. So, so observe and make the right call. Make sure that this is still processing. That guy in Florida, I really, I still feel like, you know, over the parking space, that when he decided, this is this was the problem with the way his brain was programmed, I think. When he decided to draw the gun, automatically he also decided to fire or pull the trigger. I really, yeah. truly believe that's, that's what, you know, that was his mindset. Oh, I'm drawing the gun, and it's like there's it was just an automatic response. Gun comes out, I pull the trigger. But the the the, the reality is that OODA loop needs to be like more like this, where you observe, you orient, you decide to draw the gun, you then do so, and then you got to go back through that cycle again. Okay, I drew the gun. Now do I, you know, now what? Right? Oh, still have a threat. Okay, now I decide to pull the trigger. It's got to it's it's two different actions that got to take place. Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't word it that way, and I don't think that's always fair to think of it that way. Because if if out of the gate, before you draw the gun, if you've made the decision that right now I I need to act, then you need to act as quickly as you can, and that's you know that that's one action. That's draw a gun and fire, uh, and 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 I know that you feel that way too, Riley. So I just want well, to kind of clarify no, that's that. That's fair. It, it's situationally dependent, but sure. But in a lot of these kind of scenarios, I think that it does need you know like it, it's totally different. You got somebody on top of you. Or somebody right. that is an active sure. threat, like it's very clear what's happening. Sure, they're stabbing your wife, right? Right. So, so here, here would be my thought. I think a lot of this comes down to this mindset, and and by that I mean that that def- we talk about the defensive mindset, right? My core objective in carrying this gun and in deploying it in an environment has to be my own survival, and and if that is my core, deepest, darkest, you know, objective then everything that I'm going to do, all the action that's going to come out of, of that deep purpose should be defensive, which should mean that I shouldn't be chasing people and shooting at them. It should mean a lot of, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, we, uh, there was a news story you guys covered a little while ago where someone was shooting a, a criminal through a, a drive through window. And, and we talk about this one where this guy seems to be chasing. And we talk about the Florida uh, one as well. And, and it, though, it's hard for me to see that and say your core objective deep down in your and your system really deep was defensive. And maybe it was, and you just get yeah. caught up in the moment. And it's like, even though circumstances have changed, I am not reorient, reorienting based on the most recent data. Like you talked about the OODA loop. Maybe I'm still just stuck in my response and I can't, I can't put the brakes on and reorient my system based yeah. on the latest information. But I would say still, even though there may be contexts where – you you know you're gonna go you're gonna draw and you're gonna go right to firing the gun, but, but there still has to be this repeat you know a cycle of going through the loop because even as you're firing, I think you still got to be processing and go okay I fired one I fired twice okay he's going down maybe I fired a third time oh he really is going down and oh like, like you have to be like in other words you don't draw and then fire and automatically empty the magazine right. Because there has sure. to be a point where you recognize, okay, something's changed. Threat is either s- slowing down, becoming, you know, continuing to be a threat, or they have stopped totally being a threat, and we gotta adjust as we mm-hmm. are evaluating, taking in that, that new information. 
Yeah, I think that's totally valid. And, and I'll, I'll also plug here the idea of stress inoculation. We did an episode, I can't remember what episode mm-hmm. number, the title was something like how to be 40% better than a cop or something like that. Right. And we talked all about stress inoculation and the, the simple reality that you know law enforcement agencies saw like 400% increases in accuracy on the street when they, when they perform stress inoculation type drills. And I think that's a lot of what this comes down to. It's that the human is not used to those environments where we feel that kind of a threat. And so we can't process information as quickly as we need to. So you got to figure out how to inoculate the, the system so that you are able to function in those environments, uh, you know, at least to, to some degree, even if it's not you know, your full cognitive ability. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really critical. I will just real quickly say this. I don't want to anymore hear anybody ever talked about that Florida incident as the parking lot thing. I, or the parking spot. I'm so tired of seeing news stories that say <laughs> but you knew man what I was shot meant. over parking space. <laughs> it is ridiculous. The man was not shot over stupid parking space. An argument was created over a parking space, and then later he was shot over in, in a violent attack. Yep. Uh, so I think that we got to uh, change that. I, I, I don't disagree, I see, but you knew exactly what story I meant when I brought I did, it up. I did, but I'm pissed. I'm so tired of, of seeing uh, you know, CNN, New York Times, USA Today, all of them are publishing articles right now that, that A, make this, the suggestion that the, uh, someone was shot over a parking spot, and B, say it was it, you know that this is the Florida stand your ground law that's protecting this man from criminal prosecution. Both those things are not true. Yeah, he yeah. was not shot over a parking spot, and stand your ground law has nothing to do with it. So yeah. anyway, I'm sorry, yep. but you said something about the parking spot, and I, <laughs> I just couldn't resist. Just think, uh, had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I don't disagree. Uh, we do have a comment. Uh, I, I know we haven't really addressed a lot of comments on air with uh, some of you guys, but uh, uh, Trey says one extra round is considered excessive force. Jail time is a very thin line. That could be, okay? Like, I would agree on principle that one extra round more than what's needed is, well, more than is needed. However, I could definitely see situations where there's, I want to be careful with how I say this, but just imagine that you start firing at a, at a threat and they, you know, initially they're hit and they, for whatever reason, automatically respond. They They begin to kind of almost like, turn and sort of spin away. Uh, I've seen plenty of dash cam or body cam footage where this happens. A guy shoots, you know, a bad guy and they just sort of like, you know, go tight and, and kind of clench and then kind of like roll away. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're facing a threat and you're firing fairly quickly. Where do you draw the line as far as what's that excessive round when the dude is, you know, two third or one third of the way turned halfway turned two thirds of the way turned all the way back. You know, like it's so, it's really hard to say exactly what is one excessive round, right? That's, I, I, so I, I think we just need to make sure that we're doing the best we can to be very threat-focused, very much save-my-life focused, like Jacob talked about. I thought it was very, very good advice that Jacob uh, shared just a minute ago. All right, we got to wrap it up. So with that, uh, just one last uh, mention in case you missed it earlier. For those that are participating live, uh, I doubt uh, Pike, well, maybe they skip ahead of the intro. I don't know, Jacob. But if you missed it earlier, big announcement, USCCA member discount, 15% discount if you are also a Guardian Nation member. Log into the dashboard area on concealedcarry.com into your member in you, where you can see your member benefits. Click on member discounts. That'll give you everything you need to know, a link where you can go and apply for, get that, that 15% discount and or sign up for USCCA today with that 15% discount. Do that. We're so excited to be teamed up with USCCA on that. 
And secondly, just a, one last shout out about tonight's uh, Guardian Nation live broadcast event, uh, Q&A session. We've got Clint Macro of Trigger Pressers Union and National Training Teacher Day. Really good event. I'm sure it'll be. Clint's got really smart. He's, he's very thoughtful and thorough in the way that he thinks through and, and, and applies uh, his knowledge and experience in the self-defense context. So very excited to have him on our GN Live event tonight, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. We hope to see you there. So with that, Jacob, thanks for doing this episode with me today. I know you got to get going. Yeah, dude. I'll be back with you on Thursday. Cool. So thanks, everyone, for your support of the podcast. Uh, we will see you Thursday. It was another great episode. we got a pretty interesting episode planned for Thursday. I, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but let me just tease, tease it by saying you're going to be hearing from about 10 or so industry professionals. We're going to have 10 – well, I don't know if all of them have been po- podcast guests in the past, but I think most of them have been. So it will be a really cool episode where you're going to get a lot of great info directly from the mouths of these very wise and experienced uh, people in the industry. So I look forward to doing that episode here in just a couple of days with Jacob. So with that, everybody, take care. A reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.